Today is a day of celebration because uh, today is Graham Rue's first Sunday back with us. No, no, hang on, hang on. He's not in the room yet. Shh. Listen, listen. You get, to, you get to save you. He's actually out of the room on purpose because I asked that his mom take him out of the room and just maybe ask him some random questions, maybe how you feel and stuff like that. So um, he's going to come back in here in a minute when we call him back in. And when he comes back in this room, I want you guys to give him a standing ovation. All right? This kid has been through um, the ringer. And so if you don't know, uh, basically, um, I mean, on a real serious note, I know we're glad he's here and everything, but um, listen up, listen up. On a really serious note, I mean, there were at least uh, a couple of times where I literally thought I'd be doing his funeral. And I don't think that, it's a very, very serious thing he went through. And he literally almost bled out a couple times with this hospital uh, deal he had to go through. And it started out... um, bad and, and the whole way through got pneumonia the whole deal just every turn we thought it's going to be get, get better going to get better and then um we'd have some bad news and so i've never been more terrified or scared as a pastor for one of my students and just their life and so we're so grateful that he's um finally back with us and so um if uh here's what we're going to do i'm going to bring him up here on the front and I, he probably can't climb on this i don't want to cause like a ruptured whatever so um i'll just have him stand down here in the front <laughs> And uh, I will not be responsible for any medical mishaps that happen to him. Um, there's already been enough of those. So uh, we'll have him stand here in the front. I just want to pray for him. And I have a little uh, gift I want to give him as well. So um, if you guys could bring him in. You guys give him the loudest when he walks to that door in just a moment. He's probably out playing in the parking lot right now. There he is. Hey, come to the front, Graham. Come to the front. So I, I told these guys, <clears throat> I told these guys I would not make you climb the stage because I don't want to cause any issues with your, your stitches and stuff. You still have stitches in there? They just give you like a zipper for easy access so they could like, because they need to do that because you have a lot of issues down there, right? Okay, so um, so just a word of caution, do not, you guys can go ahead and sit down so you can see him. Yeah. Um, don't hit Graham in the stomach because someone already tried that. It did not go well today. Um, hey, we don't, we don't know who it is. Do you know who it was? You don't know who it was? I don't know who it was. I know her name was something. I don't know what it is though. Um. But, but just, I know guys tend to greet each other with like, hey, dude. It's like that, don't do that for a while, a long while with him. So here's what I got for you, man. Uh, um, I asked your mom what your favorite restaurant was, and she said Roadhouse. So he lost like 25 pounds. So there's Weight Watchers, and there's four surgeries. Like one of those, I'd go with Weight Watchers if I were you. Um, so uh, he's been through a lot, so um, I want you to go and eat as much cow as you can, all right? And get, get really, get back to the, because if you think about, like, do the math, that's like, like one-eighth of him is just gone. Like, it's, there's only seven-eighths of Graham left now. So um, let's pray for Graham and uh, just thank God for, and celebrate today with him. Let's pray. God, we just thank you so much for Graham. We thank you for just sparing him, we thank you for um, just the miracles that you did these, this last month or so. We just thank you so much for that. 
And we thank you that uh, you give us doctors and medicine that can pull off um, these kinds of things. And we know that um, nothing escaped your sovereignty, nothing escaped your notice, nothing escaped uh, you in the last month. And we thank you so much for that. We thank you so much for Graham and for the gift that he is to us. And uh, we just pray that he just continues to heal and uh, continues to um, just bring us life and vitality as well as he's such an integral part of this youth group, Father. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thanks, buddy. All right, guys, turn your Bibles to Judges chapter 8. Judges chapter 8. So, sometimes success can change us for the worse, and we're going to see how this plays out in the life of Gideon today. But before we get into the text, I, wanna, I found a couple of top ten lists that I wanted to show you that relate to this idea. At times, success and power and prestige can change us for the worse. And so I found two, uh, we're going to do these countdowns. Um, there are certain... And this is great for you because you guys are just in that mode of life of trying to figure out what you want to do for a living, for a career. And so there's two lists I want to show you this morning. The first list is going to be um, the careers that are least likely for you to become a psychopath. And then the second list will be the careers most likely for someone to become a psychopath because success and power tends to change us. So here's the first list so you guys can see where you fall on this, in this spectrum here. So the least likely, we'll start with that one, the least likely person, this is 10 to 1, um, accountant. Anyone want to be an accountant in the room? You plan on being an accountant? No? No one? Okay. So if you want to be an accountant, then you are well on your way to not being a psychopath. So congratulations. Number nine is a doctor. Doctors in the room? Might be one or two over here. So, so number nine on that list. Now, number eight is creative artist. Any creative artists in the room? Now, does this one surprise you? Because I know a lot of creative artists, and they're all psycho. That definitely surprises me. Number seven is teacher. Now, you're like, well, they don't know my teachers. They don't know my teachers. Number six is a charity worker. Least likely to be a psychopath. Number five is a beautician or stylist. Stylist. You know what? I found, I found great comfort in this because they use scissors. So I found this very comforting. Number four is a craftsperson. I don't even know what that is. They work at Hobby Lobby. I don't know what that means. Are they crafty? If someone's crafty, they're kind of psycho, right? They're, you're crafty. Um, they like scrapbooking. Candace will like that one. Okay, uh, three is therapist. Therapist. Now, my wife is a therapist, so she is number three on the list of non-psychopathic type people. That's comforting to me. Uh, number two is a nurse. Anybody want to be a nurse in here? All right, so that's good, I guess. And then number one is a care aide. I don't know what that is either. 
I have no idea. Hospice. Hospice care. Okay, there we go. So there's some medical people in there. Now, these are the ones most likely to be a psychopath. Number 10 is a civil servant, which, again, I don't know what that really means, but it's post office going postal. That is why they say that. Number nine is a chef. I just want to remind you that they make all of your food, and they like knives. Number eight is hey, it's number eight. It's not number one, so you just hush. Hey, you'll you'll think this is okay. When we get to number six, you'll think this is funny. Right, number seven is police officer. Now, this is one I got to give him credit because you got to ask the question, does it attract psychos or do they become psycho after they become a police officer? Because I would suggest they become psycho after they become a police officer because they have to go through so much stuff, right, with that job. Number six is a journalist. Now, I must tell you, honestly, that is my major in college, journalism. And I'm a pastor. That's not working out well for me. Number five is a surgeon. So it's doctor, but doctors like to put people to sleep and then cut them open. That is a surgeon. Number four is a salesperson, which we can all see that. They lie all the time, right? And number three, for Anthony Garcia, because he is in the room. Where is Anthony? Media, TV, and radio. There we go. That's for you, my friend. Number three. Number two makes complete sense, and it is lawyer. And then number one, surprise, surprise, it is CEO. Did you guys see that one coming? So that means if someone's in charge, they are also insane, right? So there's your list. Now, this last list, what do all of these jobs have in common for the most part? Okay, these are mostly people who have a lot of power and prestige, have seen a good amount of success. So what we conclude from that is sometimes success can change us, and it can make some people go a little crazy. So today we're going to look at Gideon. We looked at last week, about half you guys were gone last week, so if your spring break was great. But half you guys were gone last week, and so you missed our story about Gideon. But basically, he, he saw some really amazing success with 300 men, he defeated the Midianites, who were how many, if you were here last week? How many? No. 135,000 Midianites, and Gideon had 300 people, right? And so success changed Gideon for the worse, and so today we're going to see how this played out. So look at Judges chapter 8. Now I'm going to summarize portions of this passage so that you don't uh, get lost here. We don't cover the entire thing just for the sake of time. So uh, the first three verses are summarized like this. Gideon and the 300 men, they defeat the Midianites. 
Um, now they're chasing the kings of Midian. Their names are Zeba and Zalmunna. So just a word of caution. Do not name your child from the book of Judges. It will not go well for them. Uh, now look with me in, in uh, Judges chapter 8, verse 4 to 6. Looking at verse 4. It says, And Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over. He and the 300 men who were with him, exhausted, yet pursuing. So he said to the men of Sakoth, got to pronounce that O, although it sounded like a different word. Uh, Sakoth, please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted, and I am pursuing after Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. And the officials of Sakoth said, are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand that we should give bread to your army? So here's what's going on. Gideon with the 300 men, they're probably on foot. They're pursuing after these two kings of Midian, and they're really tired. They didn't have meals ready to eat back then. They didn't just add water and they have a steak. It was, we got to find some food. So very often, they'd have to go beg, find another town or whatever and, and say, can you please give us some bread? Please give us some water. Please give us food so we can pursue after these guys. And so they say, hey, we're, we're pursuing the enemy here, so can you guys help us out? And these guys say, well, you guys don't have them yet. You haven't captured them yet, so we're a little concerned. We're concerned that if we give you food and then you fail in your mission, it's going to come back to haunt us. So the answer is no. We will not help you in your pursuit of these two these two men. Look at verse 7. It says, so Gideon said, and I love this, this verse here. It sounds like, you guys ever watched the movie a long time ago, Monty Python? Really old film. This sounds like, I'm not saying you should watch that. Don't say that I said that. Um, but if you have seen it, it sounds like a line from that movie, that, what I'm about to read here. So Gideon said, well then, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will flare your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars, right? He's making threats to these guys. And from there he went up to Penuel and spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Sakoth had, had answered. And he said to the men of Penuel, when I come again in peace, I will break down this tower, their tower that they had in their town. So, Look at uh, Gideon's confidence in this passage. Instead of saying, if the Lord gives these men into our hands, he says what? He says, when. You hear that? I mean, he has gone from whatever happened to Gideon, the man who was the weakest man in the weakest clan. Whatever happened to that guy? That guy is no more. We, we've got a new kind of Gideon. He's a guy who is making threats. He's taking names. He's... He's threatening people. He's saying, I'm going to flail your flesh with the briars of the wilderness, right? And he's talking trash. He's got swagger. He's had some success, right? Did I miss something over here? Anyway, moving on. So I want you to see here, though, this shows us something really profound, I think, in the story, and it's this. Gideon has totally forgotten who has won the victory for him. He has completely forgotten where the victory came from with the 300 men and the 135,000 Midianites last week. He thinks he has arrived. He thinks that, you know, I've got this. We've had some success. 
And he really thinks that he should get the credit and the glory. He thinks he should ride through the countryside with his men and, and everyone should bow to him. Everyone should pay him homage. Everyone should dole out things for him. He thinks that he should get the credit and glory for the victory. Looking at verses uh, 10 to 12, I'll summarize these for you very quickly. So Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian, they are with the remaining 15,000 men. So 120,000 men had either fled away or been killed from the first battle. 15,000 are left, and these are with the kings. So 120,000 Midianites had fallen at the first battle that we discussed last week. So then in this part, Gideon finally captures these two Midianite kings, Zeba and Zalmunna. Picking up in verse 13, let's read that together. Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from the battle by the ascent of Heres. And he captured a young man of Sakath and questioned him. And he wrote down for him the officials and elders of Sukkoth, 77 men. And he came to the men of Sukkoth and said, Behold, Zima, Zeba, Zima, what? Zeba and Zalmunna, about whom you taunted me, saying, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your men who are exhausted? So Gideon brings these two men through the town of Sukkoth. And he says, hey, these are the guys you were taunting me about, the guys you said I, wouldn't, I didn't capture yet. Well, here they are. You know, the men that you wouldn't give us food to go out and pursue. And so after the battle, Gideon captures a young guy, and he interrogates him. And he, he says, give me all the names of the elders of your town. And he writes these names down. And let's look what happens in uh, verse 16. And he took the elders of the city. So 77 men. Gideon takes these men out of the city. And he took thorns of the wilderness and briars. Don't forget the briars. They're very, very important. And with them taught the men of Succoth a lesson. And he broke down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. Now, we don't know what teaching them a lesson means. We assume it means flailing their flesh with briars, right? And so then he goes on to Penuel, which is also called Peniel, and he kills the men of that city and tears down their tower. Now, I want to remind you something. Listen, you don't know this yet, but this looks like brave and bold until we remember the people he's doing this to are Israelites. Now, you didn't know that, did you? You thought they were Canaanites. So in your mind, you're like, oh, they're Canaanites, so who cares, right? Like, these are expendable people. But now that you know they're Israelites, it completely changes the perspective on the story, does it not? Gideon is doing this to his own people. That takes on a whole different level of meaning when you realize that he has gone to a whole nother level with his vengeance, with his hatred, with his arrogance, with his confidence. He is beating Israelites and he is killing Israelites who do not want to help him in his conquests. I want to, read, I want to just summarize for you verses 18 to 21. Here's a couple of points. So Gideon finds out at this point that Zeba and Zalmunna had killed his brothers. He had a lot of brothers, so he found out these two guys had killed his brothers. And then Gideon kills these men on the spot when he finds this out about these two men. Judges 8.21 says, And Gideon arose and killed Zeba and Zalmunna, and he took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of their camels. 
This will come back to be important a little bit later on. But apparently they had, like, camels had some bling back then. So they, they got to have some decor. And so Gideon takes that after he kills these two men. Looking at, at verse 20, 22, it says, Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Verse 23, Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Now on the surface, this appears humble. On the surface, it looks like Gideon is doing the right thing. And he's saying the right thing here. But he's not acting the right way here. At this time, uh, the Israelites did not have kings. They had judges. They were given to them by God to speak truth to them, but also to lead them against the Canaanites. And the people here, they want a king. It sounds like the story of, of King Saul later on. The people want a king so they can be just like all the other nations around them. And here Gideon knows that God has to be their king. God has to be their ruler. That it cannot be him as a human. And I want to remind you, I think this is us as well. Like we are always tempted to look to human leaders before we look to God. There's something about the human leader that we love. We love that human leader. They almost become like a God to us. And I include presidents in this category in our country. They almost become like a God to us. Like they will save us. They will be our Messiah. They will set us free from whatever oppression we are under. And we tend to look to human leadership, human leaders, before we look to God. And we still do the same thing today. And so Gideon says he doesn't want to be king, but he is not acting like it. He says with his mouth, I don't want to be king, but he sure isn't acting like he doesn't want to be king. As he's walking through the towns, he's expecting people to show him respect. He's expecting people to give him food. He's expecting people to bow to him and his success militarily. He says, I don't want to be king, but he is not acting like he doesn't want to be king. Other part of Judges, we learned that Gideon had 70, listen to this, he had 70 sons. How many wives do you need to have 70 sons? Because one wife ain't having 70 sons, right? She would say no at like number 20, right? That's not going to happen. So you need a lot of wives to have 70 sons, and that's just sons. Not even talking about daughters, because you know he didn't get 70 for 70, right? With sons. He had some daughters in there, I'm sure. He had 70 sons. So he had a bunch of wives. We also know from judges that he had one son from a concubine, which is basically his mistress. I mean, this guy is not a good dude anymore, right? He has changed as a result of his success. So Gideon says he doesn't want to be king, but he is not acting like he doesn't want to be king. Look at verse uh, 24. And Gideon said to them, Let me make a request of you. Every one of you, give me the earrings from his spoil. For they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, We will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak, and every man threw in it the earrings of a spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold. Besides the crescent 
ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, and besides the collars that were around the necks of their camels. Now, why is the writer giving us all this detail? I think here's why. Because what happens when you have success and you experience some victory, what often comes with that is prestige and money and notoriety. And so what you see here is Gideon says with his mouth, I don't want to be king, but he's not acting like it because he has surrounded himself with all these material possessions. He's even taken the garments of the Midianite kings. I mean, I don't know if he like tried them on and wore them around the, 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 the land. or I don't know if he did that or not, but he probably did, right? He suddenly becomes just ensnared by wealth, and I want these things that these other kings have And I want to act like a king, even though I'm not the king. And so this kind of sounds like the golden calf incident, right? With Moses and, well, Aaron uh, set up the golden calf at at Mount Sinai. Picks up a collection, and everyone puts their gold, and they make a golden calf to worship after, while God's giving Moses the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, right? 1,700 shekels of gold, that's 50 pounds of gold that they give to Gideon. Here's what Gideon does with this gold. Look at uh, verse 27. It says, And Gideon made an ephod of it. I'll show you a picture of that in just a second. And he put it in the city, in Ophrah. And all Israel whored after it there. Again, when, when God takes a noun, turns it into a verb, things have gotten really bad, right? After it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more. And the land had rest 40 years in the days of Gideon. So even in their disobedience, God still grants the land rest in spite of the fact they've been disobeying him and living apart from him. So what is an ephod, you might ask? Well, here's a picture of one. This will be on the the front breastplate of a priest. And you might think to yourself, what's wrong with that? God commanded that priests wear those. Um, in the Old Testament. So what's wrong with Gideon making one of his own? We know the problem comes in when it says this ephod, whatever it was, became a snare to him and his family. It reminded me of like Lord of the Rings. Like, it's like he, I can just picture someone's, like maybe this inspired the movie, I don't know. But um, with Gollum, you know, with the ring, he's just ensnared by this this ring. And then of course later on, um, what's the hobbit's name again? The, The main hobbit? Yeah, yeah, that guy. So, Bilbo Baggins. So, um, everyone becomes ensnared with this one little thing, right? And so, what we have to conclude with this, because the Bible tells us he becomes ensnared with it, and they, they worship it. They, this thing becomes like an idol to them. So, all the gold, all the jewels that he has taken from these kings has now become more important to him. Listen, hey guys, I need everyone like up here. Like, conversations should be ending. Stop talking and listen. Listen to me. So he has taken these things from the kings of Midian. And instead of letting things like this that God has said you should design, you should make these for the temple and for for worship, instead of taking those things and and letting those things point him to God, because God's not anti-beauty. God is not anti-beautiful or whatever word you want to put in there. God appreciates that. He created it. He wants that. 
but he wants those things to point to him. And instead, the people in Gideon become ensnared by this thing to where they almost make it into, they do, they make it into an idol. And so Gideon uses God. Gideon uses God to bring himself glory instead of being used by God to bring God glory. He has gotten everything reversed. The leader is supposed the leader is supposed to keep the people from idolatry. But Gideon once he experienced success, he leads the people straight into idolatry as their judge. There's this gap between what Gideon says and what Gideon does. He says, I don't want to be king, but he doesn't act like it. He acts like he wants to be king. There's a gap between what he says and what he does. How often is this true of us? There's a gap between what we say and what we do. We say we follow Jesus Christ, yet we live in sin sexually. We say we follow Jesus Christ, yet we gossip and slander other people. We say we worship and follow Jesus Christ, yet we participate in things that we know are sinful. There's a gap between what we say and what we do. And all these issues with Gideon, listen, all these things with Gideon, they go back to one thing, and it's success. Now, I'm not saying this morning that success is bad, inherently bad. I'm not saying you should like not try hard, not study, not achieve. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that we can link all these things back to one thing with Gideon, and it's his success with the 300 men. All they did was break some jars and blow some trumpets, and suddenly he thinks he's arrived. He thinks he's the man. He thinks he is in charge. He's got swagger. He's got everything going for him. And he thinks he forgets where his victory came from. He's arrogant. He's vengeful. He's talking trash. He's committing idolatry, leading the nation into idolatry. Gideon, in many ways has become a new man, but not in a good way. And I think what success did to Gideon, it does the very same thing to us. Here's what success does to you and I. It causes us to completely and totally forget about God's grace. You begin to think that I deserve success. You begin to think that I should get praise for my success. And I think sometimes success is the absolute worst thing that can happen to us because it can corrupt you and make you forget about God's grace. One quote from Tim Keller, he says, We need to remember we are saved by grace when we fail. We need to remember it much more when we succeed. Most of us think about grace whenever we fail. Like, okay, I failed. I'm, I'm horrible at life. I'm not very good at things. I need to, remember God, need to rest on God's grace and mercy. But whenever you and I succeed, that's when we have the greatest chance of truly forgetting about His grace. Because we forget where the victory 
came from. We forget. That's when we forget about grace in times of success. The most dangerous time is after the battle, not before. Remember uh, Gideon before the battle? What was he doing? He's, God, God, give me, give me assurance. God, give me a sign. Help me to know this is really your will. Help me to know this is what you want me to do. God, I need you. I'm desperate. I need, I'm dependent upon you. And I'm the weakest man, the weakest clan. Like, what, how, why are you calling me to do this, God? He gets one little victory, a miraculous victory at that. Suddenly, he just thinks he's the man. He started out scared but humble. Now he's proud and arrogant because of what God did through him. So the question we have to ask this morning is, how do we stay grounded after we have any kind of success, spiritual success, whatever you want, word you want to use? How do we stay grounded as we have success? Another quote I want you to read is this. The gospel keeps us from honoring ourselves when we succeed and from hating ourselves when we fail. How do you stay grounded? You reflect on the gospel. Because the same gospel that keeps you grounded whenever you succeed is the same one that keeps you grounded whenever you fail. If you're putting your faith in Jesus Christ, his finished work for you on the cross, you're finding your identity in him and not in what you do, not in your successes. The gospel of grace will, will in a sense, keep you from losing perspective whether you fail or whether you succeed. So to wrap up this morning, I want you to go ahead and have discussion at your tables. Go ahead and have some discussion to close out.